And Father, we do, um, we come before you, Lord. Uh, we sing about this glorious day of your coming. And Lord, I just long for it. Father, this world is in so much need of you. And uh, Lord, we suffer with uh, pain and loss and bodies that are falling apart. And Lord, we, um, we know that you hold all things together and the, uh, the answer is found in you. And Lord, as I look at this text today, in Luke chapter 9, Lord, we see that we so miss the mark so often that we as Christians, as followers of you, as those who have uh, received your word, Lord, um, we still don't get it. We lack the power and the love um, that you've provided for us. And Lord, we, um, Lord, I know I just come to you with a heavy heart this morning with loss. Um, thank you that it's a place that it's okay for me to kind of break down in the pulpit. And uh, Lord, I just ask for help today as we go through this story. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that. I'm like, wasn't expecting this. Silly worship team had to go and play that song, you know. <laughs> I uh, I appreciate the support that everybody's given. Yesterday was a rough day. It's uh, been a rough uh, 10 years. And... Uh, the answer is Christ, uh, and uh, and uh, we live in perilous times, and I'm glad that, uh, you know, we have hope in him. So on that, I'm going to try to move on and get into the story and kind of transition. Thank you for allowing me to have that little moment in front of you all. Um, but we are in Luke chapter 9. We're continuing through. Um, Luke chapter 9 has been a very convicting chapter for me. It's... Um, it's a highlight in many ways of the whole Bible to show that God alone is the hero of the story. When we look at other um, sacred writings and stuff, the scripture is the one that like the men who wrote the Bible, they're shown for like being total and complete failures and missing the mark over and over again. And we see this picture of God who is so gracious and so merciful and so long-suffering. Um, and in today's story, we're going to read, Jesus says to them, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? And there are a lot of things that Jesus says that kind of is like, whoa. Like he's like getting like sort of, he's turning his eyes towards Jerusalem. He's been with them for up, you know, over two years and they're still not getting it. And and how long do I have to put up with this? And we're going to see in this story, um, I see kind of like two main things. That they lacked the power that he'd given them. And they'd lacked the love that he wanted them um, to live by. And so we'll read this story and we'll work our way through it. So in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day... When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with, with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as, he le- as it leaves. 
I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started amongst them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him beside by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this text. Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us now as we work our way through it. Lord, we um, ask that you would soften our hearts, Lord, um, that we would hear a word from you. Lord, that you would, um, Lord, that you would help us um, to allow you to do the work um, that you want to do in our life. Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So when I look at this story, we're leaving last week the transfiguration where Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up to the mount where the transfiguration happened. His glory was revealed to them, and Moses and Elijah appear, and these three apostles get this picture of the divinity of Jesus in all of his glory, and the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And they walk down the mountain to find the rest of the disciples and, and, and everything kind of unravels. And it's uncanny to me the, the like the sort of the picture of Moses going up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and then coming down and to see Israel like in that short amount of time to already have the golden calf. And they're already kind of walking away. Um, so they come down and as they're coming down, this large crowd is formed. There's Jesus with the three disciples, and then there's the other nine disciples with this huge crowd. And stuff had been going on while they're away. And we're told that a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, 
I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. We don't know much about this man other than that this child of his is his only son. And that culture was very like, important that the son, this is where his fa- like his where he was taking care of his family would be held together through the son. We learn from the other um, Matthew and Mark that this child had had epilepsy seizures from like from infanthood, like from a very young age. He was desperate. He came and he goes to the nine apostles while Jesus is up being transfigured. The nine apostles are down there trying to help this kid and they can't do it. And this guy's desperate saying, hey, I went to your disciples. They can't help me. We're going to see. After he talks about verse 39, and a spirit seizes him and he screams and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And it only leaves with difficulty. Does it leave him mauling as it leaves? I begged your disciples and they could not. From the other ones, we see that this when he was seized, he would be thrown into the water, thrown into fire um, like Satan is trying to kill this child. And I can't imagine as a dad going through this. There's a family in the church that has a little son that gets seizures. It started last July. And my heart has just been like, like to see just with epilepsy, or not even epilepsy, just a seizure, to hear a little child as a parent when you're totally helpless, to see convulsions happening. This guy is desperate. And the only place he knows to go to get help is Jesus and his, and his disciples. And the disciples can't do it. And in the other stories in Matthew, the disciples pulled Jesus aside afterwards and they said, hey, we like what? How come we couldn't do that? And Jesus goes on to say, you have little faith. Like you, you lacked faith. Therefore, you lack power. I've given you power to do this, but your lack of faith. And it's the, where he says, if you only had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. And I don't think he's saying that, oh, if we have faith that we can all sit there to Palomar, go, guys, let's pull together with our faith and let's move Palomar. But I think he's saying, like, if you even had an ounce of faith, the power would be manifested in your life. And then in Mark, when the dad comes to Jesus, he goes to Jesus. He says, if you could help me. And Jesus kind of stops and says, if what if is there like I can totally help your boy. Do you want it like. And so this guy kind of comes with this, this lacking of faith that God can intervene. And so what I see in this section that Jesus, this you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. I look at this and I think in my life, like over the years, like I feel like I'm a little bit better, but like I'd probably be lying if I said, oh yeah, my faith is like just like rock solid, you know, like no questions. I never worry about anything. (laughs) But it's like, you know, we've been there. Oh, only if I could see Jesus fill in the blank, then I would be good to go. Like Jesus just revealed himself to three of the apostles. He's healed all kinds of people. He's fed 5,000 men and they still lack his ability to move in their lives. And we're going to see that then they kind of miss everything that he's been teaching. And I think of, you know, like I don't deal with kids like teaching wise that like my own are okay because they're mine. You know, there's more grace with your own. But I mean, I remember like teaching Sunday school when I first was kind of doing the ministry. I was in a Spanish speaking church. I speak no Espanol, very little. 
And there I'm with the kids, and there was one kid named Pablo. And we, like, invested in this kid for years, like, trying, like, two years of, like, sharing the gospel with him. And we'd look at him, and we're like, okay, Pablo, you're growing. How do you get to heaven, Pablo? Don't punch your sister. He had an older sister. <laughs> no, Pablo. Don't cuss. Well, well, cussing's bad. We don't want you to cuss, but that won't, like... And we're like, just trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Like, that's all... But it was like, after all this time, it's like, Pablo, like I want to bang my head on the wall. How hard is it to answer trust in Jesus? It's not a trick question. And I kind of feel like this is Jesus. Like, what's it going to take, people? Like, what, what's it going to take? I think of Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees come to him and said, oh, will you just do this one miracle? He's like, you're no more. You're just going to get the miracle of Jonah. You're going to see me destroy the temple and raise it up on the third day. The resurrection of Christ would be the last miracle. And when I look at this, I think, well, like the church across the, the United States is lacking like power. And where's our faith? You know, Acts 1.8, turn with me to Acts 1.8. Just a couple things that I like, you know, as this isn't to scold anybody here. Like, I think we have a great church. I love our little church. God's done great things here. But there's a couple of verses like, you know, here... God had equipped them with power. And the thing that limited their ability to like exercise God's power was their lack of faith. And in, in Acts 1.8, we read, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so this is Jesus right before he ascends into heaven. He tells them, go to Jerusalem, wait. The Spirit's going to come. And when you receive the Spirit, you'll have power. And in Acts 2, 2, Pentecost happens. They're filled with the Spirit. The church has power to not, not to do crazy stuff, but to, to share Christ, to be used by Him to see lives changed. And to keep going over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is, is one of my favorite books in the Bible. If you read Ephesians every day for a year... At the end of the year, you would have more theology than a lot of seminaries give students, like their understanding of God. There's so much in this, in this one little book that you can read in about 15 minutes. You can read it every single day. D.L. Moody, at the end of his life, they, he said, they asked him, well, what was the, like, the biggest spiritual accomplishment you ever accomplished in your life? He said, it was that one month when I just read Ephesians every single day was the most the spiritual highlight of my life because by the end of the month, I had it like memorized and there was so much there. And that song, Glorious Day, like that's actually from an old hymn, Third Day's Redone It. And if you just like sung that song, got that song stuck in your head, you'd have so much good theology about what Christ has done for us. But at the end of chapter one in Ephesians, Paul like breaks into prayer throughout this letter. And what he prays for the church, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory in his inheritance of the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his what? His power toward us who believe. And then he goes on to say these are in accordance with one. The same power that's working towards us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And two, in verse 22, it says, the same power that's put Jesus at the right hand of the Father and given all things subject to himself. That he's God over all. And we're told that that power is working towards us. And I read these and I think in my life sometimes, like, Lord, where's my faith? Because I, you know, like, I don't always feel like I'm leading the most, like, like, I don't feel like the power of the resurrection is the power that I'm experiencing right now. And then at the end of chapter three, I have to turn my page as he kind of concludes another prayer before he goes into the meddling section. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I look at these verses from Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament, and it really humbles me going back to Luke before I start getting, you know, a little too critical with the apostles, you know. Like, and they're there, and they're like, let me find Luke. So back in Luke chapter 9, they go to Jesus. They're like, Lord, like what? How, how, how come we couldn't do this? And he said, you need more. Your faith is lacking. To the dad who brings him, he's like, if I can do it, you're starting with the wrong assumption. Of course, I'm God. I can do whatever. And I love it. He's still like in the midst of all this, bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. The power of Jesus' spoken word. This is demon leave. We saw it with the pigs. Like we see this. Jesus just speaks. People were flocking to him up to this point in Luke. He's done all kinds of miracles. But it doesn't say, oh, they were like flocking to him just for this. Like there says that people were coming to him. But almost always the first thing he said is they wanted to hear his, what he had to say because he spoke like no other person before. And so he speaks to this thing. The demon leaves this boy who I'm imagining is 12 or 13 years old. This father to have his son back or to have a son that he's never had before. It sounds like he's always had this thing. And now he's healed. I just picture this father bowing down and worshiping Christ. And we're told in verse 43 and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Like, don't let people tell you, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Like, they're worshiping him as God, that the greatness of God, there's Christ and what he did. And I love, like, they're doing this, and Jesus is like, let's turn the corner. Let's not get wrapped up in, like, you guys wanting to make me king. He says, but while everyone was marveling at what he was doing, like, they're just amazed at what he's doing. And, and I don't know what happened up to this point. Like if the disciples were bickering, like, why did Peter, James, and John get to go away? Like, why did they, like, what, what's going on with that? And then, like, Jesus says, hey, guys, okay, I got to start preparing you. He said to his disciples in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. And I love the phrase of that, like this Eastern way of, of you know, the Hebrew mind and like we're Westerners, we don't think is like abstractly like this phrase. Let these words like sink into your ears. Like is let it sink in and they're not going to get it until later. But he says, for the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He said, listen, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. 
Chapter 9 is this, this turning point that he knows he has to go. At the transfiguration, they're having this conversation between Elijah, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And they're talking about how his time on earth is done, how he's about to go to the cross. He'd already told them, who do people say that I am? He says, listen, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be buried. On the third day, I'm going to rise. They're not getting it. But Jesus is like telling them beforehand what's coming. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the statement. So there's a lot going on about this statement. Like, it was concealed from them. They were afraid to ask him. Like, what in the world is he talking about that he's going to be delivered? And so they kind of shift. And they an argument started in verse 46 among them. As to which of them might be the greatest. So now they're like bickering amongst each other like Peter and James and John are like, we just saw his glory, like his glory in heaven. Like we we're good to go. I see James going to Peter. Yeah, but you opened your mouth again. You remember that? Like you're not going to be as good as I am because we just kind of kept our mouth shut. Like I don't know. They're bickering over who's going to be the greatest. And here we're going to look at from here to where we're going to end today. It's this, this lack of love. In this first section, it's a lack of love for each other. Then we're going to see a lack of love for those that are outside of their their little clique. And then there's going to be a lack of love for their enemies. And so they're sitting there arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And I, like, I just see Jesus like with me with Pablo. Pablo. Really? Like, really? You guys are arguing over who's going to be greatest? You guys are all in a race for last place right now. And you're arguing who's going to be greatest? Now, turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. I think this will highlight. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Got my mind on Ephesians. So Philippians chapter 2. This passage, for most of it, people point to and say, Oh, Jesus, the Christology there, that every knee is going to bow at Christ. Like he's... But the whole purpose of this section is found in verse 5. Like Paul is writing this to the church from prison. They're worried about him. The pastor that sent a gift, Epaphroditus, almost died on the way there. And in verse 5, as Paul's writing to encourage them, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, hey, this is the attitude of your heart. This is how you, as Christians, how your hearts need to be before God. And then he goes on to say, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So Jesus being God all times, he emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made into the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he says, Jesus being God, out of love for us, became man. And that's like a way a step down, big time. So here's God who's 100% man. Don't ask me to explain it because we can't, like, we can't in our finite minds totally conceive the, the infinite God. But here, Christ, the Messiah, in eternity past, 
becomes man. And not only man, but he's born into the poorest of poor homes. And then he goes and he's executed on a cross. Like, talk about, you know, feeling like that you don't deserve something or that you're better for something. But our, our God, our Messiah, he humbles himself in this way. And then it continues, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so Paul writes, listen, guys, you need to have this attitude of humility, a humble, that you care more about others. And back in Luke here, verse 46, the, the apostles who Jesus is about to leave the church to, they're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be numero uno. That doesn't, that's not humble love. That's not, oh no, you first. You're like, I'm just like, I'm just glad to be here. And we're going to see the apostle John, you know, known as the apostle of love. And by the time he, at the end of his life, when he writes the gospel of John, he won't even refer to himself by name, but simply humbly is the one who Christ loved. That the only, the only thing he sees is that here I am and God loves me, that Jesus loves me. And in this verse, Coming up, he's about to call down the lightning and fire on a people. Jesus gave him the nickname, him and his brother, the sons of thunder. Like he came a long way because he experienced God's love. And here they haven't gotten it yet. And Jesus, when he hears this, verse 47, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And it's this total backwards, upside down paradigm. Like, I think there was an audio adrenaline song who most like I think the Fredericks boys will probably know who they are. Do you know, you know, a couple of, but there's like the one, the way up is down. And the whole song is about like, you want to advance. Yeah. You lift like, but by falling down before God, that's when he lifts up. He wants us to be humble, to see others as those that, that Christ died for, not to put ourselves first. What we're going to look at at next week, Jesus is going to encounter all these people and almost all of them. There's a little phrase in there that I think is a problem. They say, but let me first do this. Me first, me first, me first. Like I think of Finding Nemo, those, those, those birds. Mine, 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 mine. Like that's our problem. <laughs> and they're arguing. He says, no, this little child, this insignificant person, become like this. The one who's least is the greatest. And I love what Jesus says in Mark 10, 45. He says, but the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he says, you're not greater than the one you worship. And so if Jesus being God came as a servant and served everybody. He's our example. And we're really like take ourselves like really seriously that we deserve all of this. But we looked at Jesus like, well, he was he's God. And yet he came in this manner. 
Like there's no wiggle room for me to think that I'm important or that I'm of like any better than anybody else. And it's a total like people. And I think that this church has like as a whole, like has like the whole servant's heart. Like I love it. Like the behind the scenes that nobody sees. Like I sent Joshua and Anna an email. Like their family is just like such an example of like servanthood. Like it just blesses me from like Deborah's back there on the computer. During the next service, she'll take like all the little kids and play with them so that mom and dad can kind of watch the service. Joshua's barbecue and she's like and they probably driving them crazy right now that i'm pointing them out but there's a bunch of different people i could point out and it's like this is like no lord you've so loved me and i just want to serve and share what you've done for me and then we move on to the next so they had a lack of love for each other and then in verse 49 like they're just like like luke is really highlighting their failure and the thing I hate about scripture showing other people's failures is it so highlights my own failures. <laughs> like every one of these areas, like I'm working it, like God's doing a work in my life in these areas. And so John then answers to the lead. So it's like, did you get like, John, were you listening to what he just said? And so John opens his mouth and says, um, and said, master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. So as we were out, we saw somebody cast out. The first thing is kind of funny is how effective were they in casting out demons just like a few seconds ago? (laughs) So so there's a group that there's not in their little circle that's actually effective at what they're doing. But because they're not in their little clique of the apostles, cut it out. We're with Jesus. You guys aren't with Jesus. Who do you think you are casting out demons? Like, does John think Jesus is going to say, attaboy, that's what we're looking for in the church. They're not in your clique. They're a little bit different. And there's so much, like, biting and, and nipping within the church, like, not with our, but like, but like with churches at large, like, do you guys realize that all the evangelical pastors in Valley Center are pretty much like good friends with each other? Like, we're all like, hey, we're in this together. We're striving. We each have our, like God has equipped us each differently with different personalities. And so, you know, but, but we're, we can work side by side. We're not at war with one another, but the church is so at war. If Somebody is slightly different than us or they hold a slightly different theological position. Like I have strong biblical convictions on theology. And I am dear friends with people who hold exact opposite views. I heard Warren Worsby say that theological convictions are tools to build with, not weapons to fight with, which I think is so true. So, and, and there are, and, and not saying Jesus, we're going to see, and when I get to the Samaritan, Jesus, there's definitely like a place for truth. But we, we need to figure out what the right hand things are, the things that like are, that scripture says, no, you fight and divide. Like the, there's clear um, distinctions. Like Jesus is Lord. When he died on the cross, he paid, the sin, he paid for the sins of the world. He rose from the grave. 
the Bible's the inerrant word of God. Like they're like the like fundamentalist has turned into a bad word, but originally the fi- it was like the five fundamentals of the faith. And these are things that no, this is what we divide over. But then the left hand stuff, like you know, what kind of music do you listen to? Do you tuck in your shirt or not tuck in your shirt? Do you do how do you educate? How do you do stuff? These are not things we divide over. I should have told you guys to stay in Philippians, but it's good to learn your Bible. So go over to Philippians chapter 1. This is the last time we... Well, you guys, I guess I have. So Philippians chapter 1. Paul's back in prison, or he's still in prison in this one, under house arrest. And in Philippians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul is there as he's opening his letter. The church in Philippi is concerned about him. Paul started the church. They send their pastor to set to Paul to send him a gift because he's got to fund his being under house arrest. The pastor brings word that the church is concerned that there are people that are now that they are preaching Christ solely for the purpose of basically libeling Paul's name and getting Paul in trouble. And listen what the Apostle Paul says, starting in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Whoa, isn't that a mature attitude? Like maybe Paul, like with the apostle, like seeing all this stuff, he's like, Eve, as long as Christ is proclaimed, it's humbling. Because we like our little circle of like closeness, like we do church this way. And then you go to another country or you go to another church and they do things a little bit different. It gets a little bit, oh, it's a little uncomfortable. And it amazes me that, like, God, like, blesses people and, and theological groups that I disagree with, you know. He, it's, he's never come to me to ask my permission on any of these things. <laughs> and, but it's, like, like charismatic groups or non-charismatic, like, God works in spite of us so often, most often. And it's humbling. And Jesus looks at him to John, the apostle of love, and he says in verse um, 50, Jesus said to him, do not hinder him for he who is not against you is for you. And so here they failed in their love for those outside of their little clique. And they're about to fail again in their, that their lack of love for those that are their enemies, those that are not of the same faith as them, the Samaritans and the divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. It was two way. <laughs> Like to be, you could pro, become a Jewish by prosthetite if you were a Gentile. Samaritans could not become Jews; they would not allow them. It was a common prayer that they would, that the Jews would pray, "Thank God that I'm not a Samaritan, and that they won't be with us in the resurrection." Like there was like harsh tension between these two groups. And verse fifty-one, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And so I don't have my little pointer, but the lake, you guys know, 
is Sea of Galilee. There's a river that flows from north to south into the Dead Sea. That's the Galilee region where they're coming from. They would go down, I think we said that it, like 60 miles, 60 miles or so from north to south by the way the crow flies. In the middle is Samaria. They would either go to the east of the Jordan normally to come down or they would go to the coast. It's kind of still today, if you go to Israel, if you want to travel from Jerusalem, which is right here, to the Sea of Galilee, you've got to go to the coast and go your way up because it's a Palestinian area in the center and there's still tension. And so they're working their way straight, going through Samaria as he's working his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. Verse 52, he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. So they came in, they're trying to go to the Motel 6 or whatever. They, you know, hey, we, we're passing through, we're on a couple days journey. They say, oh, well, where are you guys heading? We're going to Jerusalem for the, for, for, for the, the big feast. Sorry, just keep on going. You guys are going to Jerusalem, you can't stay here. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, the apostle of love, saw this, they said, like, like this is the greatest request of a prayer. Like they who lacked power, John who saw the transfiguration, now thinks that he's like armed and dangerous. Said, Lord, I'm about to pray this prayer. You know, can you give me, can you flip the, like the nuclear weapon button, you know? Like I'm about to pray it, but I want to get your permission first. It says, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They're being difficult with us, Lord. Should we smoke them? Let's just wipe them off the face of the earth. And it strikes me because we still deal with this before we start going too hard on John. I think the church is known more today in America for what it's against than what it's for. And we need to stand for things of truth, but have love also. Like there are things that I'm like totally opposed to. But then the question is, do you have friends and people that you love? Like, do you have a homosexual friend? When you start speaking about homosexuality and how God feels about it, do you actually have someone that comes to your mind or is this just a faceless person? When we start talking about whatever issues they are of people that are not there. When I was in Bible college, a a missionary came and spoke, and this lady said something that was radically profound. She said, our goal, what did she say? She said, "We we don't love people to witness to them. We witness to them because we love them. And her point is, we've gone there, we've made friends, we've, we've, grown to love these people to get to know them and then it's because we really do love them and see their lostness that's what propels us to to share christ with them we don't go and do a bunch of games and stuff that's just it's just a trick in order to witness to them i hope that makes sense there's a big difference and when you're actually like out there as salt and light to a lost world and then you start having friends and family that like The Bible speaks judgment on these lifestyles, but there's like faces that you truly love them and you're you're desperate that they come to know Christ because that's the hope. It's radically different than like, oh, we just hate all of gays. 
you know, there's that church, unfortunately, that's picking everywhere. And it's like, where? Like, where do you guys, like, where do you pick this up in the scriptures? Like, where do you see that God is propelling you to respond in this way? And listen what Jesus says to them. He turned and rebuked them. Like Jesus confronts them and scolds them for their behavior and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. Just earlier, what was the last spirit they encountered? Spirit of Satan that they cast out. Jesus is saying, Satan wants death and destruction. And you're acting like him, like you're one of him. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's marching to Jerusalem to give his life, to give all, so that they might have life. We're to love our enemies. And this is terribly, like, this is like, Lord, this is like hard. Like, I'm a, like a warrior by, 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 like, by background. I just lost 25 buddies yesterday. And is my inclination to go, oh, I want to go and just kill all Islamic? No. No. There's like real evil in the world. And these sacrifices, it's like, Jesus, we need you to come. Because the only way we're going to experience peace is for you to change the heart of men. And we need to reach these people. But God has also ordained government to restrain evil. And war, there's nothing, absolutely nothing pleasant about it. Like in the last 25, 24 hours, I've just had that British guy from the BBC's voice in my mind when he said, did you share in the euphoria of your fellow countrymen with the killing of Osama bin Laden? And I was like, no, absolutely not. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Like, why not? I'm like, this is like, this is horrible. Like, these are lives that are like on both sides. This isn't what God intended. Like, and it's horrible that this is the reality, but we long for the day when Christ comes back and Jesus died for all people, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists. He loves them so much and he wants us to have that same love that we wouldn't see them. Second Corinthians chapter five, that we no longer see men through our flesh, but we see them through the spirit that every person even the person who cuts you off on the freeway, Christ died for. And once they pass you, you might even see that there's a little Jesus fish on the back of their car, which is why I don't have one on the back of my car. But he says, I came to save men's lives. And when I look, and there's like, like it's not that there's not truth. In, in John chapter 4, verse 22, when he meets this Samaritan lady at the well at the middle of the day all by herself, and he starts speaking of the resurrection, he clearly says to her that salvation is of the Jews. The Samaritans are wrong. Like he didn't water down his message that there's truth. No, no, salvation comes to the Jews. That the Messiah, that for all people is through this, you guys are wrong. But I love you. And the salvation's for all people. So there's this balance of this tension between truth and love. That's a terribly difficult thing. And when I look at this passage, it's like totally just humbling. Like I just like, Lord, like I see all of these failures in myself. And and how do we guard ourselves? How do we like as a church guard from this? 
And I think the first thing to realize that, that, hey, you know, God's not up in heaven like wowed with us. Like he's not, he's not up in heaven like, check out my church, Valley Baptist Church. They are just like, I can just go to sleep at the wheel. They got everything under control. Like as soon as we think that we're like God's linchpin, we're in trouble. We need to be on our faces. Lord, we're just so in awe of your mercy and your grace towards us. And you've loved us so much. And we don't want to miss what you're doing. Lord, we lack power because we don't have faith. Lord, help us to have more faith. Lord, we lack love in like the inner. We can fake it on the outside, but Lord, deep within our heart, could you fill us with your love that we would be transformed? And where I want to end is, will you go to, with me to John chapter 15? I want to kind of fast forward Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the next book. And John chapter 15, John, the gospel of John records the longest scene of the Last Supper. This is right before Jesus' arrest. Our story begins as he's going down. And in John chapter, well, it starts in John chapter 13 is when um, the Lord's Supper begins. It goes all the way through, I think, to chapter 17, maybe. Yeah, to chapter 17. So John gives a few chapters to this. And in John chapter 13, 34, and 35, he begins by giving them a new command. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This theme of like love, love, love. I can't, I talked to so many people. I had a great conversation with one parent at VBS who is not necessarily on board with like what we believe. She said, well, I just think that the church has been like this tool to manipulate women and to keep women down. And I looked at her and I said, well, I kind of disagree with you. I think religion has been used to manipulate and destroy a whole lot more people than just women. Like, do we want to open up the history books of like all this stuff? And she's like, wait, 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 what are you saying? Like, I thought you were about to come like totally defend church history and everything. And I was like, sorry, bolt like thing there. Um, and I was like, no, like man is sinful and has created religion. Like the problems when we start looking at, at Christians over history, the problem is they're not Christian enough. That they've used this form of Christianity that's not what Christ has said. And can you imagine if every proclaiming Christian just simply was overflowing with love? How radical this world would be. It would, be, it would flip the world upside down. And Jesus knows this. And then in chapter 15, this is the one I'm just going to, he talks about this love and abiding in him. And I don't know how much I'm going to comment on it, but this is where we're ending. Jesus looks at him. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That always bothers me. Because how do you get more fruit? It's when he cuts back. Like I like, I like plants. I like doing gardening. But I like roses. Anna does not have the green thumb in the family. She has what we call the brown thumb. And just like when the roses start blooming, it drives her crazy that I cut them all back. I'm like, I've got to do it if we want more roses. 
And so here, if you're not producing fruit, you get pruned. If you're producing fruit, you're going to get pruned because you need more fruit. And he says, you're already clean because the word which I'd spoken to you, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. And if you follow John's writings to the epistles, this phrase of abiding in Christ, that's the key to everything. You want to walk in with God, we need to abide in him. The, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, I have grapes also. But I think all plants. But grapes are amazing. If you cut a grapevine within like 15 minutes, that thing's totally withered away. Like it's not like a, like a rose you can cut and you can get it in a pot for like a water for a while. It'll survive. A grapevine, you cut it, it's like there's nothing you can do to salvage it. And that's like us with Christ. We need to abide in him. If we cut from him at all, we start shriveling away right away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's that power. See, it's not like if you're in Christ, you're not going to ask for a bunch of crazy stuff. Lord, help me to fly with no plane or help me to, you know, I'm about to double down a blackjack and I'm like, that's a thousand dollar. Like I prayed that prayer. I asked, (laughs) didn't work out for me. But it's the idea is that we're submitted to him. We're in a line with his spirit. And then when we ask, when we pray, it's amazing what he does. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. I'm not repeating the same line over and over again. He's trying to hammer home a point to us that we would be people of love, not just to our little clan, which we can't even do half the time, that we would have love in our marriage, in our families, in our church, amongst other churches, amongst people who hate us and want nothing to do with our values, that we love them. And in that, the world sees who Jesus is. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that the one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. The guy who wrote this is the same guy that prayed for fire to consume the Samaritans. 
Something changed significantly from then to here. The light bulb came on. And John, who was named by Jesus one of the sons of thunder, at the end of his life, he's known as the one whom Jesus loved. Nowhere in his writings does he say, oh, I'm John, an apostle. He just, all the way, he, he says, I'm just a guy who Jesus loved. And you know what? Jesus loves me so much, and I love Jesus. And in that, there's so much joy and peace. And this is a guy, all of the other apostles were put to death for their faith, except for John. But it wasn't because they didn't try. Tradition holds that he was boiled in a vat of oil and survived, and then was exiled to Patmos. And so here he is telling us as we read this passage, Jesus wants us to be filled with love. If we love God, he'll equip us to have the power to do the things that we need to do for his glory, to see lives changed. To have this sort of love is hard. And so we're going to end with a song. I'm going to pray. And the song we're singing is Refiner's Fire. And I really want that to be our prayer because none of us, Like, I'll raise my hand first. I have not attained what Christ wants from me. And he's not done working in me. And so this song is about asking the Lord to refine our hearts, to continue the work that he's doing, that we would be more like him, that we would be the people that he wants us to be. So we'll pray and we'll sing this song. The worship team can come up. And Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for your word. Father, I thank you that the scriptures point a very real picture of of people, of sinners um, that miss the mark, that we we tend to be selfish, thinking me first, and um, we think that the world sort of revolves around us. But Lord, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you, Lord, for how you invested in these disciples' lives and to see how they were transformed by your love. Father, I thank you that you love each one of us so much. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ we've received the Spirit of God, that there is, uh, that you've enabled us, Lord, with the power that we need to live our lives for you. Father, we pray that you would help um, our faith. Where we doubt, Lord, we ask that you would fill it with faith. Lord, that you would increase um, our relationship with you. And Father, we pray, um, Lord, that you would help us to become a loving people. Lord, that we would um, not manufacture fake love, Lord, but that we would have love that comes truly from within our souls. Um, Father, we want the world to know that we're your disciples. And you said that we do this by being a people of love. And we need your help, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.